When there's a fire or medical emergency, most run the other way. For hundreds of volunteers in our community, it's the exact opposite. This year, Portage Health Foundation is celebrating those volunteers with $50,000 in funding. All volunteer emergency services units in Barragahoton, Keweenaw, or Onsonagan County are eligible for this funding with up to $5,000 available per grantee. This grant can be used to fund new turnout gear, make upgrades to vehicles or buildings, and much more. We can't wait to see how this funding will be used to make our community a safer place. Learn more at phfgive.org. Welcome into Capra Country Today. I'm Grant Ducetto. This program brought to you by the Portage Health Foundation. You can learn more about them at phfgive.org. My guest is Gail Plo. She's with the 906 FACE Project that is facing addiction through community engagement. As part of the FACE Project, there was a community survey that was done in February of 2021. And I'm reading this upside down here, but it looks like there were 469 respondents. So what did this survey ask and what did we learn? We asked a wide variety of questions about substance use disorder. You know, people commonly refer to it as addiction. We're trying to move away from addiction because that carries some stigma. We're trying to change the verbiage a little bit. So, you know, I will refer to it interchangeably because I've been in the business a very long time. So I'm used to saying addiction. So we asked our community a lot of questions about the problem of drug addiction and what we can do, how we can help people, what's missing. And we wanted to know if it has touched people personally. We wanted to know about overdose. We wanted to know about what they think about medication-assisted treatment and what has worked and what hasn't worked in our community. I guess I'll start by asking, was it just the five-county district for the Western UP Health Department, or was it more than that? It was the five counties. It was our five-county area, and we had a lot of participation in Barragun, Houghton, minimal participation in, in Ontonagon, and small participation in Gogibic and Keweenaw. So we, we were very happy with the results, though. 469 people filling out a survey is pretty good because that was only available two weeks. So we got the word out through social media. We, you know, word of mouth. Keweenaw Bay Indian community actually had printed surveys that they had in their lobby that were available to people when they came in and somebody could help them with pen and paper because a lot of times older folks aren't necessarily um, as computer savvy a, you know, it was a Google survey going online. They, they may have been less comfortable doing that. And what were some of the results? Because I'm looking at this, and there's some surprises. So we, we actually had, I guess I want to preface that by saying we actually divided into three different surveys. We created a survey for the general public. We created a survey for, for people who are providers of direct care or assistance, and for people with lived experience, that's anybody who's used drugs, whether they've used them in the past, whether they're currently in recovery, whether they're still using them. So one of the things that didn't surprise us, we asked people, how serious do you think the addiction problem is in your community? Out of those 469 people, 80.8% rated it higher than an 8, you know, a 9 or a 10. That's significant. Um, and then we wanted to know, has anyone you loved struggled with their use of prescribed or illegal drugs? And 72.4% of all the people who filled out a survey said yes. And I know that you were presenting at the County Board of Commissioners meeting, and we talked about the potential of an outbreak for, say, HIV-related to drug use. And you mentioned that 
Barriga County was high on the list. Uh, Gogebic and Houghton counties were both at least uh, certainly above the the average level. So it does seem like there is a drug problem here, and people have identified that as such. Yes, yes, there there definitely is a drug problem here, and people are struggling, people are hurting, and need help. You know, the first thing we can do, it's, it's interesting because as part of this survey, I did a number of key informant interviews. I think I spent about 20 hours talking to people one-on-one. And Judge Wistie, Judge Mark Wistie, headed our um, 97th District Treatment Court here in Houghton County. And when I asked him, what can we do? What can we do to help people with substance use disorder? The very first thing he said is, stop calling them names for starters. And I thought, that's such an important, it was kind of a funny, funny comment to begin the conversation. But he's right. You know, it's very difficult to come forward and say, I have a, I have a substance use disorder. I'm struggling with my use of drugs or with alcohol. If I'm worried that you're going to think I'm a lousy person, you know, and if, if all those names and all the, all the negativity and all the stigma and the shame, it stops people from asking for help. So I think that was, um, it's important to realize it's here. It is affecting our neighbors, our children, the people we love. Whether we know it or not, it may not be apparent, but many people have struggled. And the first thing we can do to start, I guess, opening the doors to treatment is change how we look at that um, disease, disorder, problem, whatever you choose to call it. Our Surgeon General called it a disease, so if we wanted to defer to the highest ranking health officer in the country, I guess we would call it a disease. So if we change how we look at it, more people are going to get help. Talk about the treatment court here in the area a little bit. When I was down in Sturgeon Bay, they had just started theirs within the last year or so. And it seems like this one's been a bit more established. This one is a bit more established, probably maybe significantly more established. I could, I, I believe that they just received accreditation. Um, the treatment court is an amazing opportunity for someone who has a substance use disorder to kind of turn their life around and have a different, a different, um, I don't know, relationship with the legal system. So somebody comes into treatment court, they are immediately entered into a program that requires a full year of counseling. The, the program's 15 months, and it's very intense, and they are in front of a judge every two weeks to kind of report, but the value of that is that there is a, there's a whole treatment court team addressing issues with this person and kind of cheering them on. It's, it's not necessarily a punitive. It's, it's like, okay, we understand you have this problem. You have this substance use disorder. It has led to maybe several drunk drivings or maybe a possession charge or something related to your addiction. And so we're here to help you treat that so that that revolving door of returning and coming back into the court system because you don't have that under control, that revolving door stops. And this is the last time through court. And people are um, very surprised that when they go in front of the judge, it really is an interactive, the judge calls him by name. Um, There are people in the court who clap because they, you know, because they're celebrating 30-day sobriety or they're doing well. They, they celebrate accomplishments and they help identify resources and interventions to help this person do well. And when someone fails, as often happens, people have, re- they return to use early in the, in the, 
process. There's less punishment than, um, how do I say this? Like, we're going to gather around this person and see, okay, how can we help them? How can we get them to an AA or an NA meeting because they don't have transportation? How can we, you know, connect them to a peer recovery coach? What can we do to help this person? So it's a 15-month program. People graduate, and many people are able to um, get their license back if they were having, you know, drunk driving offenses because they're, they're, they're able to have the alcohol lock in their car and, and able to get transportation. And as we all know, trying to get around the UP without a car in the winter is just crazy. So, um, or any time, because we're very remote. So treatment courts are great. So I'm looking at the flyer here, and it, the question is, do you know somebody who has died from an overdose? And according to your results, over 56% of people who responded, and remember, over 400 people responded to this survey, they said yes, which I think would shock a lot of people. Yeah, that, that's surprising because we don't have a lot of fatal overdoses in our area. Our numbers are very small. So we asked people, we wanted to make sure that they weren't saying, oh, I know a celebrity. You know, I heard, I heard Whitney Houston died. Gosh, I'm aging myself saying that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to make sure that they, that they were saying, this is someone I know. And, and so we asked them to check the boxes, friend, family member, or community member to make sure. And so maybe those some of those people are not in our area, but overdose has impacted so many people. And the pandemic, when you think of the pandemic and you think about the the effect that has had on people's mental health and substance use, it, it's huge. And so in 2020, we had a high, the highest number of drug overdoses that we've ever had. 88,000 people died. According to the CDC, 88,000 people died. And that's died. nationwide. Yes. Nationwide, yeah. Nationwide. The highest it was, I believe, during the opioid epidemic, during the height of that, it was about 78,000. So we've surpassed that. And we were making progress on, on the opioid epidemic, and then the pa pandemic hit. And people are isolated. Self-help meetings stopped. Going to your counselor stopped. Um, people were at home. They had more income and more time. So... So we obviously, we have this nationwide crisis, but we also have a local crisis. What's the infrastructure look like outside of, say, treatment court as far as dealing with addiction? Do we have enough people here who are able to treat it from the medical community, from the mental health side of things? We need more people. We, we do need more people. We do have, there are outpatient counselors in the area. There are two residential programs, the Phoenix House treats men over the age of 18 in Calumet, and Kiwana Bay operates New Day Treatment Center, and they take men and women, um, adults. So it's very, very, there are some large gaps in treatment, and some of those are, we don't have a residential program for women. You know, if you are um, a woman who, who, who needs residential treatment for your substance use disorder, you can go to Marquette, it's 100 miles away, that's really difficult. Um, if you have a child that you need to take with you, because a lot of times people don't have someone to watch their child for 30 days, you can go to Sault Ste. Marie. You can go to New Hope at Sault Ste. Marie, but that's quite a way. Detox is 
a needed service that we don't have in our area. So if somebody decides that they want to stop using opioids and, and they know that they're going to go through this grueling withdrawal, it's terrible, um, we can't help them. We, we don't have a, 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 an agency or a place where they can go. If somebody shows up at the emergency department, you know, nurses and doctors want to help them and they say they want to stop using drugs, there's nowhere for them to send them. And they don't do, you know, detox in our, in our hospitals. Um, so that's a need. You know, we don't have um, family services. We need family services here for people who struggle right along with the person that they love. If somebody you love has an addiction, I guarantee you, you are in a painful place too because it's hard to have a front row seat to somebody. Um, it's, you know, self-destructing. It looks like that. You know, it looks like somebody, it looks like somebody doesn't care or maybe irresponsible, but they are, I always refer to it as they are trapped on a hamster wheel. They, they got on the wheel for a spin and they'd like to get off that wheel and without help, without intervention, without support and help, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to do. From the survey, the results, where, where do you think this leads? What type of uh, programs or changes in the area do you think come about from the results of this survey? Well, we're hoping that um, the survey was part of a large needs assessment that we did, a whole community needs assessment through the Western UP. The health department applied for a federal grant through the rural communities for opioid response and it was a planning grant so we we received two hundred thousand dollars to get busy planning and doing the needs assessment allowed us to kind of take inventory what's here what's missing what could we do as a result of the needs assessment as a result of the survey we applied for a million dollar grant through HRSA the health resources services administration and that million dollars would be over three years to put in place some of the things that we identified during the survey. So we would um, launch a family program, a family education and support program. We would offer women's specialty services. We would offer education information support for detox. Um, there's a lot of things that we could do. One of the big ones is starting a Families Against Narcotics chapter in our region, probably in Houghton and Baraga, and we're, we're thinking that would be beginning soon. So anybody who was interested in being involved, we're looking for board members, we're looking for people who care about this issue who'd like to, to be involved. I know we've had the mental health discussions recently. Sheriff Penela had the post on Facebook, and that was even featured in Bridge Magazine and the Free Press just this week. And I know there was a town hall around Memorial Day. Was FACE and the Western UP Health Department involved with that at all? Did you have any type of discussions regarding that town hall? We attended. We attended the town hall in um, up at the Keweenaw County Courthouse, which was fantastic. And there were people who were representing from the Phoenix House, representing the addiction side of things. And we, these go hand in hand. These are, these completely intersect they intersect so much that from the CDC and um, NACHO, which is the National Association of City and County Health Officials, there's an, an initiative that has come down to local public health departments to begin addressing suicide prevention, ACEs, and overdose. The, these, 
you know, when you think about mental health and you think about the hopelessness of addiction, when someone's trapped on that hamster wheel and they're afraid to ask for help, and maybe they've had just a slew of losses behind them, relationships, jobs, you know, it's, it's not a pretty picture. Addiction's a tsunami in somebody's life. Their mental health is impacted in, in many negative ways. So they go hand in hand, and for a long time we treated it, them as if these two issues separately. We thought if you had an addiction, we had to address that addiction before we could deal with the mental health issues you were struggling with. Now we understand that it would be like you, you have two life-threatening diseases. We're only going to treat one. We're going to let that other one kind of just brew for a little while. And that's not the case anymore. Now it's a matter of we integrate your primary health, your mental health, and um, SUD treatment all into one because those, that has proven time and time again by doing that that you give people the best chance at living a healthy life. Can narcotics create their own mental health issues for users, or is it a case where drug use is a symptom of mental health problems? Oh, I think absolutely. You you can see somebody who, and and we're seeing such a, a big upswing in the amount of methamphetamine being used locally. And if somebody's using meth and they are going without sleep, it's a powerful stimulant. So people will go without sleep for days. And meth psychosis... It's difficult to say is this is this from the drug or is this is this a pre-existing is somebody having a psychotic break, so they drugs can can manifest they can manifest some psychiatric symptoms and it's hard to find out if this is a underlying mental health condition or if this is related to withdrawal or use you mm-hmm. know current current use of of drugs. You know, somebody who comes into treatment may seem very depressed, have a very high, high level of anxiety. And as they begin to develop some coping skills and they stop using the drugs that they've been using, that diminishes greatly. If somebody's in a situation where they're overdosing or maybe you're worried that they are getting near that point, what are some of the different ways that you can help them immediately stave off the effects, perhaps the lethal effects of that addiction, that overdose? Narcan obviously would be one example, but are there others? At the health department, if somebody calls and says, I would like um, Narcan, they can drive by the health department I will give them as many doses as they would like if they could if they wanted to share that with people and we have done um, Narcan drive through events at the health department we partnered with dial help we set up a tent we told people come by and get this and it's 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 worth noting that if somebody in the home it's not always about addiction if somebody in the home is using opioids because they have um, a chronic medical condition and they're using opiates at opioids as prescribed, there's a danger of overdose because somebody could, you know, have a few cocktails and, and not really think about this and take their medication before bed. And if that were the case, having Narcan in that home could save a life. You know, it's a it's an easily administered nasal spray, um, two puffs. In, you know, one puff, you wait to see if somebody, you just, it literally looks like the old, um, I don't know, allergy medicines or anything that you'd put in your nose, depress the the little plunger, give somebody a, a dose of that, see if they kind of come around, and if they don't, you give them another one and call 911. But it literally could save lives. It does save lives. 
I'm kind of curious where public health officials stand in the legalization of marijuana. It's been quite the debate across the state of Michigan going on over a decade now, back to when they legalized medical marijuana. One side of the debate, I guess you would call them the socially conservative side, says that marijuana is a gateway drug. That if you legalize it and use of marijuana becomes more common, you're going to see more usage of harder narcotics as well as people move up the spectrum, so to speak. The other side, the advocacy side, the legalized side, the one that's essentially won the debate at this point, said that that wasn't the case. Well, ever since we legalized medical marijuana over a decade ago, this state has seen a surge in drug use overall, and it's certainly seen its fair share of hard drug use, things that are dangerous like heroin, opiates of all stripes, methamphetamine, among others. And some of that, maybe a lot of that was because of bad actors in the private sector. I'm thinking certain pharmaceutical companies that were really pushing opiate prescriptions. But like I said, one side of the debate, the legalize it crowd said that if you did legalize marijuana, that we wouldn't have these issues that we are facing today. And I'm just curious, do you think that maybe they got it wrong on that front? Or is it the kind of the position of the public health departments across the state of Michigan that even though it may look that way, that may not be the case? I, I would not say that the recreational use of marijuana is creating or exacerbating the opioid addiction problem or the addiction problem that we've been dealing with for, you know, a decade, more than a decade. I don't think that's the case. But I, I want to clarify, I, I look at marijuana similar to alcohol. Alcohol is a drug. We don't think of it that way. We look at it like, oh, it's old Milwaukee. It's an adult beverage. It's a drug. It changes the way you think, feel, and, and behave. Plenty of people, the majority of people can use alcohol in moderation, they can use it socially, and they don't have a problem. Marijuana, once it's legal, is similar to alcohol. Not that you're going to have it at your 4th of July barbecue, you know, grandma and your cousins are probably not going to be smoking pot. But it in that, there are plenty of people who will use marijuana socially, recreationally, they will use it in moderation. However, it's a drug. It changes the way you think, feel, and act. And I think there's a little, there's a danger in assuming because this is legal, it's now safe. And that's not the case, and it's not the case for particular populations, you know, pregnancy. Well, instead of, um, you know, I'm going to smoke a little marijuana while I'm pregnant because it helps my appetite or helps me deal with nausea. Or, you know, young developing brain you know, now that it's legal, it's okay to smoke pot. No, it's not okay to smoke pot for the same reasons. The risk is there for addiction when we expose the brain, when it's still developing to substances that give us a big hit of dopamine. We have a much higher risk of developing an addiction. So I think we have to be careful in, in you know, there's it's like a pendulum swing between it's criminal and it's it's a-okay and it's perfectly normal and it's a safe herb and we should use it for everything that ails us. Mm -hmm. So, And last thing I'll ask you about is what you did present to the uh, Board of Trustees and that would be the NIDO exchange program that you guys are not necessarily starting up. It's been around for a little while but most people probably don't know about it. So maybe I'll give you the chance to just explain what it is and why you think it's necessary because it does come with some controversy. It's right. just It's a controversial thing. I mean, anytime you're talking about potentially kind of helping people who are addicted, there'll be people who say, you know, that's the wrong, that's the wrong move. Right. 
that I'm glad you asked about that because it, it in the whole scheme of things, we're a public health department. Our job is to to improve public health, protect public health. And some of these initiatives, the FACE program, you know, that project moving in, and we're partnered with, I think it's worth saying it, that this is not just the health department. We're partnered with Keweenaw Bay Indian Community, Lackview Desire, and Dial Help addressing addiction in our community. The health department also started a Positive Steps Together program, which is a peer recovery program for women who are struggling or at, or at risk for substance use disorder. So making sure that we are covering all spokes of the wheel, harm reduction is one of those spokes of the wheel. The syringe service program that the health department operates provides sterile syringes to people who are addicted, who are already using IV drugs, with the goal of preventing further harm. I mean, it sounds simple to say, straightforward to say harm reduction. Somebody's already trapped on that hamster wheel and they're using a needle. They may reuse that needle 10, 20 times. And the chances of them getting an infection or you know, sharing a supply with somebody else or um, contracting a disease like hepatitis C or HIV is real and present. And so by providing safe, safe sterile supplies, we literally prevent disease development, disease spread. And another very important part of it is we are a resource. Every time somebody comes in to get supplies, they do a quick little questionnaire and intake. They're treated with respect, dignity, compassion, and we ask them, are you interested in treatment? And there have been, we've had just a handful of participants, which can be good and bad. We should have, when we know what the drug problem is, we should have a lot of people accessing services. We've had less than a dozen people who are using the services, and they started in September of 2019, right before the pandemic hit. So um, that has had an impact on it. We know the need is here, but people aren't accessing the care because they're what participants tell us is they're very, very afraid that this is a sting, that we're somehow going to identify them, that they're going to get in trouble, that we're not giving any anything illegal. Um, we're giving sterile supplies, band-aids, you know, alcohol prep pads. Um, the goal of a, a syringe service program is to meet people where they're at. This is where they're at. They're stuck on that wheel to keep them as safe as we possibly can until they're able to get off that and to offer resources and um, kind of a, a, be a guide if, if they're looking for treatment. So I start, had kind of interrupted myself. Of the people that came in, we've, we've referred three people to treatment who no longer come and pick up syringes because they are now in treatment and in recovery. So somebody who uses a syringe service program is five times more likely to go to treatment. As an addiction counselor, that's a very um, encouraging statistic for me. So essentially, the, the goal of the program is not to create more bad behavior, but it's to make the best of a bad situation. Absolutely. Gail, we're going to have to leave it there because we're running up against the time limit. But thank you very much for joining me on Capra Country today.